0: pleased and honored to meet my uh, to um, introduce my foreign policy research uh, Institute uh, colleague dr. Vanessa Neumann who will be talking about her new book I'll describe that in a couple of minutes uh, just came out right today is it today yeah today, today? this oh. is the first
1: talk you're the right. first yeah, you might <laughs> yeah perfect timing you. okay I'm a but Vanessa is,
0: uh, focuses on political risk in the Americas, a consultant, does a number of different things. Uh, she does so much I can't really <laughs> cover it all, but she does a lot of consulting and political economic counterterrorism across the uh, the Americas. She's the founder and owner of Asymmetrica, an anti-illicit illicit trade and uh, government affairs uh, consultancy. That is part of the research network for the UN Security Council's Counterterrorism Executive Directorate. Uh, she is a native of Venezuela, knows a little bit about Venezuela. As a matter of fact, the plan here, if she can find the time, so she's a very busy uh, woman, uh, to have her teach a couple of courses here at IWP Latin America. That's uh, my, my plan. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, as I say, uh, she has her PhD from uh, Columbia University. In theories of justice. Um, she uh, is, as I say, a consultant in a number of areas and one of the things she does is she's a reviewer for the uh, US Army's uh, teaching text for counterinsurgency in, uh, in Columbia. Columbia yeah. Col- as opposed to Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> and as I say, she is the author of uh, Blood Prophets, how American Consumers are Unwittingly Fund Terrorists? Which came out today, so please join me in welcoming Dr. Norma. Thank you. Thank you um,
1: I hope it's not too presumptuous, I just wanted, because you are my first talk, I just wanted to uh, bring my little laptop here just in case I was on the Acela down. And like, typical. Uh, Oh my God, I have to make changes to my presentation. So I have a little cheat sheet here. I hope not to look at it too much. The idea of the presentation is um, it's supposed to be sort of somewhat personal, partly because um, the book is, is quite personal. So it's personal and professional. It's sort of a, a, a professional autobiography uh, that covers um, how I, what I do, <laughs> how I started doing it. Uh, in 2009, and um, up until sort of I guess early 2017. So um, I was originally asked to speak about the Americas. So I said, well, actually, let's let's do it about the book and the Americas. The book covers various areas, um, but let's just center on what is normally my wheelhouse, which is Latin America. So. As you mentioned, um, I'm from Venezuela originally. This is a photograph of a protest that was uh, earlier this year in Washington Square Park in New York. Um, the people who organized the protest are friends of mine. and they, they they were lying down to show the protesters that were being killed by the security forces this summer. They were protesting because they were denied a, a, a what is supposed to be a constitutionally assured uh, referendum and um, they were protesting for their democratic rights. So Venezuela is in, is in free fall. And this, the book is bracketed with how illicit trade uh, funds bad guys, all sorts of different bad guys, all over the place. But I started really, as I say in the opening chapter of the book, out of love and anger, right? So love of two countries, both the United States and Venezuela, which when I was a child were very friendly, and we were allied, uh, so much so, you know, we were always close to the uh, American ambassador and go celebrate 4th of July at the American Embassy and all of these other things, and then all of a sudden there was a sea change, partly because of corruption and inequality, Uh, but what has happened, what has been the solution, has been far, far worse. So the book was originally titled grievance to greed. We've decided blood profits was some more copies. <laughs> uh, you know, violence and money, well, you know, why, who doesn't respond to that? But the concept of grievance to greed, which is still what underpins the book, is that it, I started with this rather academic premise that terrorist groups are increasingly behaving like transnational organized crime groups. So they start with this story of why they're angry, what their grievance is, what they want to redress, how they want to flip the government, etc. Um, and then they get, they, in order to fund their operations, they get into more and more into organized, transnational organized crime. This was a controversial assertion a few years ago because the thinking was terrorist groups, they're just, you know, a terrorist attack is is cheap, it's like, you know, 10 grand, you can. You know, or hey, rent a car uh you can have a, a a decent terrorist attack um and uh and you don't want to keep the infrastructure being caught that you have sort of a larger infrastructure for, for organized crime and then the idea is that organized crime groups they just want they want to do business, they want to stay in business, they don't want to deal with all of that nonsense of terrorists because that brings that rains down a whole lo- other level of uh, you know counterterrorism intelligence operations, which is no joke. So the idea is that actually, and I lay out very clearly in the book why this is really no longer the case, why they are increasingly colluding, um, and then I show it in action: how I traveled around the world and well, around the world, around certain parts of the world, not the entire world, um, and saw how you know, in tracing whether it was the traffic in narcotics or uh, pharmaceuticals or um, t- um, cigarettes and other things like that, that we found, you know, quickly came up with, oh my God, holy cow, this is, you know, there's ISIS, there's Al Shabaab, there's Hezbollah, all benefiting, and we would see how uh, what started with sometimes just overproduction of a consumer good was using an organized crime group to smuggle it across the border And then everybody would take a cut of money and we would see that people even that were enemies on different sides of a war zone were all profiting along the the way. So that was the idea of Grievance to Greed. The other idea of Grievance to Greed originally was that, and this is also reverberates in the book, is that people will then support a charismatic leader. Whether it's a Hassan Nasrallah or an Hugo Chavez, or uh, because they're angry about something, and I'm not saying that they're wrong to be angry about it. For instance, in pre-Chavez Venezuela, because I want to, you know, stick to the what I actually lived through in three D color, you know, is uh, is there was inequality and there was corruption and there was political marginalization. So they throw their hat their hat into the ring, you know, behind this charismatic leader who says, I will be your liberator, I am your defender, and what they are actually doing is manipulating your emotions uh, in order to get themselves into power, and then basically then take over, um, take over in, in the case of Venezuela, all the means of production, so that we ended up with, um, with that, this situation today. So what had happened, for instance, let me give you the sort of the case studies now so what has happened in venezuela for instance a lot of the people who are now sanctioned was uh, was Tarek elaisami who's i my nickname for him is Boy. Um, uh, was um Hesiboy, he's he sort of grew up in a border region and you see this in other parts of the world in a border region where he was descended from uh syrian family and they still have very strong Syrian family networks today into Syria, okay? Uh, Cousins, and uh, that extends even into the Assad family. Uh, And a lot of the drug trafficking that they're doing is with uh, benefits both Hezbollah and the Mexican cartels. However, he grew up, and a lot of the people in his group grew up in the border region between Venezuela and Colombia, where you have a lot of people who have dual citizenship, and consider trafficking across the border almost their right. Uh, and they, it became sort of this very um, toxic brew, uh, and they when they have the alliances with this Marxist group, this Marxist ideology, the FARC and the ELN, and they want to overthrow the government based in, in Colombia, Uh, based with this, or mixed with this, insurgent ideology and trafficking through money. Of course, what has happened since then is that, you know, the irony is the the people in Chavez's ilk were actually originally formed, were like the special forces, really, whose job was to hold back the Cubans. Um, And we had, Venezuela had its own Bay of Pigs incident. Um, So now, when they seize power, they do quite the opposite. They brought all of that drug trafficking, all of that ideology, and all of those ties right in through the presidential palace. And one of the things, there's me crying at the protest. Uh, one of the things that the country is in free fall, and lots of other people were crying too, was um, is that one of the things that's stunning is, and the nexus with corruption, is that none of this could happen if you didn't have uh, uh, corrupt leaders at the very top to enable it. I was I sat for four years on the uh, task force on countering illicit trade of the OECD, and you know la- my last year on it, they had this integrity week, and they said, "Oh, Dr. Neumann, what is the link between corruption and illicit trade?" I said, "Simple. We've never had a case of illicit trade ever that didn't involve corruption. Not one." Um, And whether it was, you know, Somalia, Iraq, Bulgaria, Venezuela, Colombia, Guatemala, Panama, all of these places are covered in the book. And one of the things that's very interesting to me is that uh, one of the problems with illicit trade and corruption, and what makes the system start to collapse at the end of it, is the asymmetry. I have a thing about asymmetry, given the name of my company, (laughs) right? There's the asymmetry between those who benefit and those who pay the cost. So once the system becomes very institutionalized, that you have this, um, you know, everybody says, well, you know, it's, it's just just give me a little payoff here, and a little payoff there, and everybody takes, they're like nobody, when you're engaged in corruption, it doesn't hurt anybody, really, you know, that's, that's the idea, who's gonna know, it's just a little bit, there's billions of dollars, it's not, The problem is, it benefits a very small group, and the people who pay the cost is basically everyone. But by the time they feel the pain of the cost, the 30 million people of the country, you know, they've got no food supply, the roads are falling apart, they've got no healthcare system, you know, they can't pay, in the case of Venezuela, Russia and China, because all the money has disappeared. Um, And then those are the people who bear the cost, while an elite sort of benefit it. So that's one of the things we see over and over again. So what happened is I got involved in this because I was angry, as I say in the book. I was angry about what I saw happening to the country of my birth, and how it suddenly became an enemy of my other country, which is the United States. And I wanted to understand that, that, that dynamic. So I started doing some research for a think tank called the IISS, the International mm-hmm. Institute of Strategic Studies, which is stronger in England than, than it is here. And I um, and I, I think I kind of blagged my way, as the Brits would say, into it and said, um, Oh yeah, sure, I know about that, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, started doing research on Colombian security. Stood up at some Council of the Americas presentation and said some to some government minister who was trying to sell me a bill of goods I wasn't about to buy, and I said, I'm sorry, sir, I respectfully disagree, et cetera. Et cetera. That got me interviewed by the media about why, why and the connections with Venezuela, and that got me invited by um, the government of Uribe twice. One, to see the changes in security in Colombia, and the second time to actually see their what they call their DDR program, disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration. Which at that time was what they're, now what they're trying to do with the FARC, and at the time it was just the paramilitaries, right, under the justice and peace law, the justices paz. So, Ustizipas was originally, uh, the original form of, oh, without getting too technical, DDR, is something called reinsertion, which is like, throw down your weapons, go home. Uh, reintegration is a little bit meatier, more expensive, you know, you do all this psychosocial stuff. But I got to really spend time in the field and see the effects of what had happened, right? And what was the different levels of complicity of how this country basically remained that civil war, had the longest running conflict in the hemisphere, I think one of the longest, possibly the long, longest running conflict in the world, I believe, if not the second, and uh, how it was basically funded by drugs, and drug trafficking done by a liberation group, right, the FARC, who has this Marxist ideology that wanted land reform. So how did it all come together? And the way it came together was nobody's hands were clean, right? So they had, when I interviewed, you would interview these villagers, and the villagers had suffered everything. I mean, they suffered the invasion by the FARC, killed a few of their relatives. Then would come the paramilitaries, who were these right wing private armies that had been set up by landed gentry to fight them, and they came through town, killed a few people. The paramilitary way of taking control of a village, was very simple. They'd grab the village elder, and like Mac, come here, stick them in the middle of the square, and start the chainsaw. And start from the ankles up, so you'd start screaming. And that was pretty much the end of that. The village pretty much fell into line. You didn't even need to waste ammo on it, just a little bit of electricity, and you were done. Uh, so it was very extreme. But even when I was there, and this would have been to 2010, 20, 2009, 2010, so it's early on in the book, People were still bizarrely. They were afraid to call them paramilitaries, and sometimes they even referred to them almost affectionately as los muchachos, the boys. The boys maintained order. At least we didn't have, you know, our girls didn't go running around in <laughs> short skirts, and curfew was imposed, and there were no, no robberies or rapes. Well, yeah, except for the ones committed by them, and, and. What had happened was what the government then had to do, of course, with U.S. military backing, was to basically reconquer their terrain. The failure of the Colombian government at the time had been that they only had representation in about a third of the country. So these con- these areas just established their own uh, their own sort of form of wild west uh, governance, uh, and and that's how. And and so they had to un- unravel all that. By the, by the time the government tries to step back in and reconquer, then they had to br- basically bribe the villagers to take them back in. But one of the things that was um, interesting about learning about what the FARC's uh, role in, in, in the narcotics trafficking and and the business as it as it went along was, of course, I don't know how much you know about, sorry, about Colombia. There you go. About... Uh, uh, about uh, the, the, the inner dynamics of Colombia, which is a whole, I mean, I, that's a whole other seminar, basically. Um, that the FARC is, although the world's biggest supplier of cocaine, it's not a cartel in the way we think of, say, the Mexican cartels. Because they're not really in there or have not traditionally been, um, in the retail point. But what a lot of the competing the dynamics that you see between the FARC and the Mexican cartels or their dealings with the Venezuelan military, who are now the main transshipment point for drugs around the world, is that they made their money because they control the coca field and they charge the tax of 10% for the kilogram pay- price of coca base. You make coca base by mashing up the leaves and mixing it with kerosene and what we call cocinas in the jungle and it's sort of a green pasty stuff. They were, a lot of the competition that you see is that they try to get into midstream control of the, of the supply chain. And always, well, this sounds like a strange thing to discuss, but so much of my work is about analyzing the supply chain, where the money is, who are the players, and how do they compete and interact. is with the Bakrim, with the Bandas Criminales, who are the, D- the DDR sort of um, uh, paramilitaries. So, they're constantly trying to get it across the border because if instead of handing it over to the transnational criminal organization, if they themselves can get it across the border to Ecuador or, or Venezuela or Panama and drop it off there, they triple their profits. So, when you look at where they're moving and who they're competing with, it's all about the money. Um, However, what's interesting is that narcotics today is still about only 25 to 50% of their income. So when President Uribe went to the UN and said, and that's me with it, I'm smiling because they kept me safe. He was like, why are you smiling at the soldiers? I'm like, because my life depended upon them. I'm a civilian and yeah, I was grateful. So um, that's us in Bogota, and those are, um, well that's Bogota, I mean we had been in the jungle for about 10 days prior to, to when that photo was taken, and I was especially grateful then. Um, but yeah, they're the counter-terrorist uh, special forces. And uh, and they, um, but one of the things that you that we see a lot is that, you know, when Uribe said, there's and there's a chapter in my book called The Little Fun, which talks about, the utter devastation of two generations of people, you know, I would see the children whose legs had been blown off by landmines. there be a cocktail hour after this talk, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. not how I like the cheery one everybody avoids. Anyway, um, the uh, who, who knew had stepped on landmines that had been placed by the FARC to protect the coca fields. Um, and they, um, you know, Oliva then stood up and said, You know, you guys snorting cocaine in New York City are the ones who have kept my country at war. Well, possibly, but there's all they're also into so many other things, including kidnapping, a war tax. I've spoken with a lot of FARC guys, which is very interesting when you fill out your government forms. They're like, do you know any members of foreign terrorist groups? I'm like, Yep, yeah. <laughs> uh, you correspond with them, yes, regularly, actually. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> always makes for a bit of fun. Um a little explaining to do. But they uh, they 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 talk about that um, uh, so one of the things that the those terrorist groups or the Chavistas for instance, you know, benefit from is anger. This is a, a slum in Medellín, but we have exactly the same slums in Caracas, Venezuela. So it's that, that inequality and that desperation. And they they paint themselves in some sort of Robin Hood way. And this, these Sons of Medellin are the ones that also protected Pablo Escobar. They viewed him as a Robin Hood hero, um, and uh, that's, that was his stronghold, and that's where he set up a zoo, and he paid them all, and he, they viewed him as as a stick it to the government, because the government had sort of stuck it to them, right? Um, and despite the fact that he was an utter thug responsible for hundreds of deaths, or thousands, even thousands of deaths, and blown up airliners, they still, these people still supported him and they also support other groups like uh, like the socialists in Venezuela, the chavistas. Um, so they that's the grievance to greed paradigm, is they go to support a guy who they feel is gonna stick it to the man, stick it to the system in favor of them, but in, in reality, they actually don't care anymore about them than, uh, than the government that sort of abandoned them. So one of the things we really need to do if we want to battle illicit trade is to hmm, try and end corruption, like yeah, easy one, um, and try and end some sort of demagoguery. So insofar as the point of the book is to make two 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 points, really, to the consumer. One is understand the consequences of what you do, of what you consume, um, and then also uh, understand Uh, don't be fooled by sort of demagoguery. So that's the Venezuela-Colombia, which is the start. Panama, Panama was very uh, interesting. So um, there's also the section in the book about Lebanon and I went from Venezuela-Colombia to Lebanon to find out what was their relationship with with, uh, Hezbollah and my plan was I'll just go with a notebook, I'll meet some Hezbollah guys and I'll ask them what's going on. Uh, You'd be surprised how effective that is, actually. Um, Especially as a woman, you know, they kind of don't, I think they don't really think you're either that smart or that effective or whatever. Um, So I got this, so I had done some research in Panama, I'm sorry, in Lebanon, that had gotten me noticed and had sort of put me on the map of speaking at at US, uh, U.S. government and U.K. government sort of open meetings on counterterrorism and counterterrorist finance, and and got me war gaming and stuff like that. So that was really sort of the turning point of my career in, 20, in That was around 2012. <clears throat> and then after I sort of like been around and give, given talks in London and New York and Paris and, and D.C. about about that, I get an email from somebody who says, "Hey, Vanessa, um, there's this guy who wants he wants to." From a think tank in the Gulf, uh, uh, wants to hire someone to do some research on uh, illicit trade and funding terrorist groups in Panama. And I go, terrorist groups in Panama? What do you, what? Um, they said, yeah, yeah, they're convinced that they were at this. Well, they, at that point, they didn't call it terrorist groups. They said it's a Muslim Brotherhood or whatever. They had a particular bee in their bonnet about that. And I thought, sure. How many years of research? What are you going to pay me? And you know. Um anyway, so and I was fascinated by it, because of course it's on the border with uh you know with um, with Colombia, and at one time Venezuela, Colombia, and Panama had all been one country as well as part of uh, ecuador and it's a well known tax haven and therefore a money laundering center enabled by their banking privacy and secrecy and I get there um and once again, I said, well, I'll, I'll arrive and I have an Abaya and I'll just find out some research, uh, find out where to, where to talk to. And the, the minute I arrived, I talked to, how do I put it, a couple of people who really knew their way around counterterrorism and had been there for a while. And uh, both locals and not locals. And they said, well, actually, we've had a really big problem here because of, the you know, a lot of... Stuff coming in from the tri-border area of Paraguay, Uruguay, um, Paraguay, uh, Brazil, and Argentina comes from there. Hits the a- what we call the ABCs—the Aruba, Bonaire, Curacao. Um, hits also a free trade zone in Colombia and pings through uh, through the Panama Canal. And we're convinced that there's some, uh, you know, some bad bad guys going on. So the interesting thing about this was. So I said, "Oh, okay, that's very interesting. Where do you think I should go to find the bad guys?" You know, they're like, "Well, there's a Cologne free trade zone and and uh, and a couple of things." So I get there, and I said, "Oh, hey, you know, um, this is all in the book. Um, I'm Venezuelana, uh, not American at all. And uh, and by the way, uh, I want to I want to see what's going on." Well, I get there, and it's. I get sent to uh, a religious leader who wants to talk to me about converting. And I said, no, no, I really want to understand your relationship with locals. He says, no, no, I just do religious conversion. And we get there and it's all counterfeit sporting goods. That's all they were doing. And that's was just, uh, oh, and counterfeit electronics. And that's all, you know, floor to ceiling. Uh, and he said, he and that's that's the chapter. Chapters. He says, "You're not who you say you are. Why would they send someone? We don't speak Spanish here. We only speak Arabic. How's your Arabic?" I said, well, "Not very good, actually." <laughs> so, anyways, he said, "Well, um, says, well, I'm gonna go down this down the street over there, and I'm gonna stand outside. The weather's so beautiful, and I miss my native Venezuela. You know, which says." Beautiful weather like this, and I'm not going to stay inside indoors at all, <laughs> anywhere near you, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I skedaddled out of there and got on the next flight out. I phoned some people. And they said, "Look, this is not. This is. These are bad dudes. This is probably not Muslim Brotherhood. This is probably Hezbollah um, links. Um, go come home." So um, the interesting is about that particular chapter is. Uh, I get an email today from our colleague at FPRI who says that late at night last night, I don't know how late it could have been because the book was just released today. A lawyer for a guy referred to in my book, which is Nidal Waked, uh called to complain that he's in my book, and she's a lawyer for a money launderer for you know various drug cartels, and the money launderer is based in Panama. So I was a little <laughs> sick to my stomach before I gave this talk, um, and. Uh, and so I quickly said, "Well, I, the manuscript has been vetted by lawyers." And they said, "Well, they wanted to know how to how to reach you." And I'm like, "No, no, 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 <laughs> Just, no, no. Info at asymmetrica.net. That's how they can reach me or someone who works for me or whatever." And that was that was that. But the interesting is there. So in that particular case, um, oh, they need Dalwakad, who's referred to in the book and who's a lawyer emailed this morning, or last night, um, there's not much they can do because he's sanctioned, it was reported by the BBC, I'm not saying anything that's not already in the public forum, but obviously they're afraid that a book will make it more in the public forum, right, than just the BBC news story. So that would be the concern. Um, is Was just typical, and it was a, a, our almost paradigmatic case for my book, you know, uh, Lebanese Colombian, there's so many Lebanese Colombians in my book, you have Ayman Juma, there's a whole bunch of them, you could almost like categorize them. I should've had an infographic. Um, and was, I had a two newspapers, a business in the Cologne free trade zone where I sort of had to skedaddle out of the, uh oh, I think I'm in trouble. Um, and a couple of banks, and as far as I know, I don't put this in the book, but it is, whispered loudly that the, uh, the, the link is with groups like Hezbollah and other groups like the, the FARC and also even the Venezuelan regime. In Caracas, people have mentioned this guy's name as being um, one, of their, one of their key guys in, in Panama. That's not in the book, but um, because I can't put that which is whispered um, elsewhere. So, um, to wrap up, because I'd really like to just open it up to questions and see what you want to say, because I could take this in a number of directions and go on and on. The, you know, there's one of the things that i uh, and we can talk about, um, in Central America, it's been a lot about sort of narcotics and money laundering. Uh, what I've worked in Africa and Eastern Europe is a lot of other pharma or uh, cigarettes as well. Uh, tobacco smuggling because it is as profitable uh, a contain truck is as profitable as uh, it, it's as profitable as cocaine uh, and with much lower penalties. So we're seeing a growing amount of that especially when you have higher taxes in one in one region because if you're a criminal you don't pay the taxes. so that's just pure profit margin. So if you undersell the price by a little bit, um, that's that's margin for you. so we can discuss that if you want. it's always contentious people are like, Sounds like you're de- defending smoking. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not defending smoking. I'm not even defending tobacco companies. I'm just saying that there's a lot of organized crime, a lot of bad guys. This is a potato sculpture. My family actually knew Botero personally. He's a big, um, you're, you're familiar with his work. He's a Colombian artist and sculptor who does a big round figures, They're all sort of fat. And he's from Medellin. So I always joke, those are the two really people who are really famous on the international scene from Medellin Pablo Escobar and Fernando Botero. So, in the heart of Medellin, there's a bunch of uh, Botero sculptures, and one of them stands there, and that was exploded by, by a bomb. I can't actually remember whether it was a drug cartel bomb, or a FARC bomb, but, you know, at that point in Colombia, like, so many people were setting off bombs. <laughs> it's got, almost got hard to tell, but they've left it there as uh, in what is now a rather beautiful, park in the rejuvenated city to remind themselves of times gone by and what they don't want to go back to. So um, one of the things that I, uh, so I guess the reason why I put that photograph is because like my book, the reason why I chose to write a book about sort of seeing it in action um, is and to a wide audience is so that we can understand um, how the impact of the choices we make Are written, are inscribed on the bodies of millions of people, uh, you know, all around the world. If it weren't for um, our being led by demagogues or our willingness to consume um, illicit goods, you know, I wouldn't see the children in the jungles of Colombia with their missing legs or um, you know, have a bomb go off uh, in Mogadishu just down the street from my you know, partner at the time. Uh, all of this where we could see in that case in Somalia we, we had the sort of boxes of cigarettes next to the AK-47s and you could swap them out, you know, how many cigarettes for how many AKs. Um, or RPGs uh, in an open marketplace, as if you were buying fruit. So, and that came out of Dubai. Those particular shipments came through Dubai and into northern Somalia, and, uh, um, and port of Berbera and Puntland, and then down into Mog. So, um, so that's it, really. Uh, that was. I hope. I hope you enjoy the book. Um, really? I know after all that. Yeah. Uh, after all that, it is um, it should have it should bring awareness of how interconnected we are, and that goes back to I guess my training as a philosopher. You uh, Mac talked about my my doctorate in in theories of justice, and theories of justice is basically about what is the government that we want, what is our relationship to our government, how do we want, and all of that comes back to how do we want to live our lives. And what do we expect out of the people who govern us? And what is our relationship, of our sense, of our responsibilities and our duties to achieve that? Um, and part of that is understanding the causality of our choices um, on, um, on the community around us. You know, how much of what we do here in America um, impacts or causes violence or funds violence overseas or even in our own cities. So that was the point of the book, and I try and make it a little bit, a little bit juicy, as sort of you know, um, woman entrepreneurs uh, travels around dicey places, gets into near scrapes, and writes a book about it. <laughs> um, so um, I hope you enjoy it, and um, I welcome your questions. Please ask away. Thank you.